it starts the under under preparation happens at that age and then of course there are microaggressions at the college level as well but if you're not prepared those microaggressions make it worse see when i was prepared and i went i went to a historically black college and university so when I, by the time I got to the microaggression, which was graduate school, where an advisor told me, you know what, you shouldn't take molecular genetics and biochemistry at the same time. I'm like, what are you talking about? I did that in college and I aced them together. What makes you think I'm not prepared to do that? That was a microaggression. She saw me and she thought, in my opinion, that I wasn't capable of handling such a, a hard coursework but it didn't matter i was so prepared that it didn't matter but when you're underprepared advising at the lower levels where that when you could take chem one your first semester your advisor tells you you shouldn't you're like well maybe i'm not good enough and that the snowball happens so there's so many reasons The voice you just heard is that of my guest. Dr. Maya Patrice Byfield is the daughter of Jamaican parents born in Queens, New York. After graduating from Oakwood University with a Bachelor of Science in Biology, Dr. Byfield received her Master of Science in Biomedical Sciences and a PhD in Molecular Pharmacology from Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx, New York. She conducted her postdoctoral associate work in neuroscience at the University of Central Florida College of Medicine. She's currently a tenured professor of biology and principal investigator of NSFS STEM Leaps and Bounds Scholarship Program at Seminole State College of Florida. As project director of Seminole State College's groundbreaking STEM research program since 2010, Dr. Maya Byfield has forged partnerships with some of the region's most prominent institutions, allowing students to gain valuable experiences in Central Florida's emerging biotechnology industry. Dr. Byfield was featured in the PBS Stories of Champions segment of American Graduate Day 2015 and awarded as one of the top 100 inspiring women in STEM in the nation by Insight into Diversity magazine. Dr. Byfield is also founder and director of Phenomenal STEMist for bright minds with the potential to become America's next generation of STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics leaders. Dr. Maya Byfield, also known as the Phenomenal STEMist, is a bridge between innate talent and real world opportunities. A role model to female and minority students, she helps a wide cross section of young people chart promising futures. Sure. Dr. Byfield, welcome to the podcast. I appreciate you having me, Ryan. Thank you so much. Who would you credit for piquing your interest in STEM, whether it's science, technology, engineering, or math? Who would you credit for piquing your interest? Uh, definitely my grandmother, my maternal grandmother. I was three years old, and my first word scientifically was photosynthesis. I don't know if I was three. I know maybe I was like four or five, but <laughs> photosynthesis. My grandmother taught me about plants at a very young age. She started off with just simple kidney bean, place it in dark soil, uh, make sure you're constantly watering it, put it in the sunshine. And I watched that pea, that, that kidney bean, uh, develop into a leaf plant and it amazed me when I saw that thing grow out the soil it just 
and um, she taught me how to dissect flowers. So I saw over, you know, the 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 stamen in the ovum of the plant, and um, that is the beginning of it all. I was mesmerized by science. It was biology that I loved from very very young age. Yeah, technology. I'm just getting into it. You know, the computers. My cousin was really key with this. He bought me my first computer in high school. He gave, he didn't buy it for me. He gave me his old computer. It was Windows 95. And, um, you know, I had, my father was really into apples at the time. Like he was constantly saying, Apple is the future. My dad, he, Apple is the future. He got me, he got an Apple II for his daycare center. And, um, and he brought one in the house, but I could never get it to work. I could never understand it. But I, I always knew technology would be the future because my dad was constantly putting it in the, in the in the house but it was when my cousin actually gave me a computer that I actually could use windows that's when I started to get into computers and you know but pretty much biology my first love and it was my grandmother yeah <laughs> how did your early education encourage your direction um Early education was key, but you was, I should say early formal education because obviously your grandmother played a part. Absolutely. I know, yeah, exactly. So early childhood education, you're talking about kindergarten, elementary, middle school, was so key for me. Um, it was the fact that I knew how to read early. Uh, when I started kindergarten, I was already reading. So like, you, like to your point with my grandmother, she, you know, she and my babysitter at the time worked really hard to, together to teach me how to read. So I was reading at three. So by the time I got to kindergarten, I was reading. And my teacher at the time saw that. And Miss McIntosh from Linden Seventh-day Adventist uh, Church Elementary School she said, I'm going to tap into the fact that she already knows how to read. And you know how the teachers would have like the little storybooks and they would have it open like this, pointing towards the students and say, you know, she would read to them. Uh, she actually taught me, well, she taught me to be a teacher because she made me do that. She made me read to them. That was pivotal. Pivotal in, in, in basically uh, developing who I am today as a professor, scientific professor. Um, it was the reading, the language development that really was key for STEM. I'm sure we're going to talk about, you know, my passion for brain development in children. Um, and, you know, it's not as simple as just doing science. It was language and reading development that was key in my early childhood education. And then once I get to around third grade, um, my teacher had science fairs. I, I created my first solar system in the third grade. And um, yeah, that was the beginning of me becoming educated in, in both left and right-brained experiences, like knowing how to read being creative in my reading, etc. And you went on to Oakwood University with the same desire to pursue studies further in STEM? Yeah, before before Oakwood, I went to high school and I was also, I went to a, a um, 
um, Adventist, Seventh-day Adventist Academy. So I, I'm really raised in Christian education, uh, which was which involves really small classrooms, intimate co in connection with teachers, uh, with a spiritual background. Um, so I think that was also key, um, just knowing that somebody is greater than myself and I could be really empowered to do that. I think STEM requires that. Uh, we'll talk about that a little later. But high school, my teacher, her name is Vivian English. She was my biology teacher. She was critical in training me in biology. Why? Because she was so such a disciplinarian such a disciplinarian like she record like she had her desks in position like <laughs> uh you come into the class it is neatly in position and you better leave her class that way um she she covered the material she didn't go off track she covered the material so you had the expectation to study the material and she taught me that in biology one, uh, and anatomy and physiology so her 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 discipline taught me how to be disciplined in science. So I got a love for science in the early childhood, and I got the discipline for science in the adolescence. Put that all together with a higher power, you're unstoppable. I'm telling you, you're unstoppable. And so yes, I then I went to um, Oakwood uh, College, now University, which is also a Seventh Day Adventist institution. So all throughout my childhood k through 16 uh well with a little bit of public school in between i got first and second grade in public school um i have been trained that way yeah you raised a critical point because very often it seems that science and a belief in god are diametrically opposed mm -hmm. but you seem to indicate that one helped with the other absolutely you know right now we're 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 trying to understand how to get increased retention in the STEM fields because there's high levels of students that want to be pre-med, want to be scientists, health majors, and they require, you know, high level uh, science classes in their first two years, general biology, general chemistry, physics, etc. And they drop out. They drop it at high rates. And many of them say the stress of it all, they couldn't take the handle the stress of it all. And I believe uh, the rest that I got on the Sabbath, the belief in a higher creator um, was the person, was the thing that calmed me. It calmed me. It, it gave me an ease of mind and a peace to handle the stress that comes with STEM. Um, so... Um, a lot of people who don't believe in a higher power, who just believe it's by chance, sometimes they just feel that they're not cut out to, to do it, you know? Yeah, so it's, 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 it was pivotal for me. Mm -hmm. You touched on your passion for brain development in children. Were your early educators high on left and right brain development in retrospect? I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't even think they un understood it because I didn't understand it. Like I didn't start learning about left and right brain until I did my postdoc in neuroscience, right? So, and then I started to write a book even. Um, and when I wrote a book, I tapped into my experience in neuroscience or my confidence that I understood a little bit about the brain. Um, and I started to get fascinated by it. Even when I was teaching 
anatomy and physiology, and I teach about the brain and this concept of left and right. This is called uh, hemispherical specialization, they call it. Like you, your brain, specifically the cerebrum of your brain, has two hemispheres, left side, right side. And one part of it is the left side is heavily analytical. That's where your language center is. A special area for language is on the left side versus the right side. Um, that's That involves spatial recognition, being able to be very creative because you can understand the, your surroundings very well. You love music and art. Um, that creativity uh, is strong on that right side. And um, it's, you know, documented that, you know, this language center is developed heavily in the early childhood age to the point where a young Japanese boy, if he's past 10, cannot pronounce the letter K, English word letter K, um, once coming to America. If you get him over here pre-10, he will. Post-10 will not. Why? Because K is not in the, the language of, the, of Japan, right? Um, learning languages is pivotal pre 10 years old. It happens, um, that development on the left side happens real quick. And so the connection between speaking and reading to science, I'm sure my teachers didn't understand that. I now look back at it and I'm like, oh, you ever wonder why a lot of people from other countries do really, really well in STEM? A lot of people think, well, it's just a discipline of the parents. That's partially it, but I think it's because they're multilingual. So, you know, some people say, oh, no, you know, some people who are, let's say, Latino, they don't want to teach their children their language. They just say, just learn English, just speak English in the home. And, and, and some people tell them to do that. Uh, that does a disservice. The more languages that are developed in a child, the higher their left brain skill is. Yeah. So, no, I don't, I don't think they understood the concept of the connection between STEM. But I remember my father, he um, was, he's an elementary school, uh, a, a daycare center teacher. And many people, I'm from New York, many people will come to America and put their children in school from, like, let's say, different countries. I remember this lady, she was from Russia, and she was concerned that he did not understand English. And my father said, give him two weeks he will be fluent in English. That's how fast a child pre-10, you know, two, three, four, five years old, they pick up languages quick because the left side of their brain is developing very quickly. And so they, they don't know it's the left side of their brain developed very quickly, but they know by experience, a child will learn languages really quickly. So should parents be developing both sides of the brain or looking at the giftings of the child and pushing one or the other? I believe parents should know what's going on in the brain at the time of their child's age and do what accentuates the life of that, uh, those cells in the brain. So I'd like to do a, a long series about what happens between the womb and pre-K in the child's brain? What's going on between kindergarten and third grade in a child's brain? What's going on in the ad adolescent? And whatever's going on, you need to uh, focus your child's learning to what's going on in the child's brain. So, for instance, the first two years of life, the brain is massively growing. And truly, like, her, their touch skills are strong. 
So they should be playing with stuff. They should be touching stuff to enhance the connection between their fingers and the part of their brain that's growing a lot, right? When they get around, you know, two and three, that's when their language development starts to occur. They need to be learning how to read. You need to be reading to them. They need to be reading. Should you be doing math and science? I don't think so. Unless you're touching cards and blocks, <laughs> you're connecting math to the counting of blocks or something where they're touching it, right? So you don't know what's going on in a child's mind in the beginning times of their years. Um, when, they're, when they're in the womb, you need to be eating really, really healthy so that the brain cells will grow as much as it can and get really large, right? That's what you want to focus on, playing music specific types of intricate classical types of music to get the brain cells to grow because that's what that's what's going on in the brain in the womb just get them growing but when they get to high school then they're starting to connect a little bit more you know then you start to do other things so no i don't believe in this concept of guiding kids learning through gifting um, i believe guiding kids learning through what's going on in their brain at the time yeah Tell us about some of the challenges you faced while charting your career course. Hmm. My challenges. Um, well, when I was in college, I wasn't sure as to what to do. <laughs> I, I love science. And my family has a collection of physicians. And so in, in, in theory, any child that excelled in science should be going to medical school in my family and so I was pre-med my first two years and I'm like you know what I don't want to be in the hospital I do not want to serve sick people um if I become a physician it will be purely because of money and family fame and I decided that's not what I wanted to do unfortunately I did not know what I wanted to do so my junior year, I was just kept doing science, kept doing research, loving science that it was, but it was like nerve wracking because he's like, what are you going to do with this? What are you going to do with your major, your biology major? And it was crazy. And it wasn't until my senior year, second semester, it was, it was that bad. <laughs> I did not. So first semester, actually, senior year, first semester, I did not know what to do. And it was Christmas break. And I never forget it. It was Y2K, the year 2000. And they, just like how we don't know what we're doing now in these days, everybody was afraid of Y2K. And so my school actually gave us an extra week in, in Christmas break in fear that Y2K would have disrupted the world. And that extra week, instead of having four weeks off, I had five weeks off. I basically studied for the GRE for four weeks and took the G, two GREs, the science GRE, and the general GRE, the lat, that extra week that I was blessed to have, that would have never had. And um, I applied, I took those five weeks to apply to graduate school. Just randomly, I saw uh, that graduate schools um, for, in the sciences have no charge, <laughs> like free tuition, and they'll give you, at that time, it was $25,000 a year stipend. I said, you know what, that's what I'll do. I'll do that. I'll just go, I'll just continue to get my PhD for free. 
I just got to get in. I got to get in. So I, had to, I applied to four schools. I said, I'm going home. I'm going home to New York. And I just want to get into one school. This was, so it was that point, December of 2000. I spent three and a half years in school, not knowing where I was going. And the last semester, biting my nails, hoping that I'll get accepted. I got rejected for three rejection letters. <laughs> and I got the rejection letters before I got the acceptance letters. So can you imagine how nerve wracking that was? And I applied to one that I easily thought I would get in. So, you know, I'm, I'm from New York. I know I, I'm, I'm sure not a, lot, a lot of New Yorkers are listening. I applied to Stony Brook University. I applied to Columbia University. I applied to Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Yeshiva University. And I applied to Mount Sinai Medical School. Top schools. Stony Brook, I got accepted for undergrad. So I was sure I would get accepted for the PhD program. I've had experience for them my, in my high school. I did their summer program for high school, and I got accepted for college. That was my first rejection letter. I was shook. <laughs> I was so worried. But I finally got accepted to Albert Einstein College of Medicine. So just not knowing what I wanted to do. And then after I finished my degree, same concept, you know, I had a dream to be a professor in college, but after getting my degree, I'm like, well, I can do other things. And I just wasn't, it wasn't coming easy for me. Um, I did a postdoctorate in neuroscience and I was like, I don't like science forever. And so I had to go into it. I did an adjunct position before my postdoc. And then when I quit my postdoc, I had to go backwards to do another adjunct, not, not knowing 100%. So there's a lot of people out there that feel like they have to know. You don't. Let your path guide you. Because my path guided me to a, a tenured position now. Yeah. So the hardest part was just not knowing the future. People like me, scientists especially, we're so choleric. We're so focused on having a five ten year plan yo that's not how life is yeah you were no doubt seeing some of the challenges your colleagues or classmates were having in the sciences were you able to identify that perhaps maybe some of the early education they received limited them in terms of their career pursuits or the range of you know I never really thought about that you know as to you're saying basically that you know my colleagues who weren't doing as well weren't retaining necessarily did they have poor preparation in terms of deciding they were interested in the sciences but not having maybe the background to begin with coming up through university yeah I think a lot of um people, whether it be my colleagues or my students, um, when you have a lack of preparation from a young age, you struggle. You struggle. Um, I, my, one of my mantras is biology is not for the smart, it's for the prepared. It's for the prepared. And if you have good study habits, if you are diligent in your work, um, you can you can succeed in the sciences. Unfortunately, many of our students aren't taught study habits, right? Aren't taught diligence. 
aren't given opportunities to go to STEM camps, you know, some of these STEM camps cost thousands of dollars, you know, and they may not have the opportunity to get those activities. With me, you know, my, I told you about my biology teacher in high school, she's the one that signed me up for the Stony Brook um, High School summer program, you know, how many students have that, you know, type of background that push, okay, so um, I believe, yes, preparation from young, meaning you're not afraid of it, right? So when you're young, you can't be afraid of it. My grandmother took the fear of science away, right? And so when I was going through my elementary years, I wasn't afraid of science and math. Pivotal, pivotal, right? And, and then I had an awesome math teacher in high school too, Mr. Campbell, like he really disciplined us so then in high school i had the discipline i needed when i went to college i knew how to study i knew how to read textbooks crucial crucial and so if a dream is not enough many people come to college with dreams of becoming i want to become an engineer i want to become a mathematician i want to become a biologist a, med a medical doctor are you prepared and have your parents prepared you. And, and I think that's crucial. Preparation from a young age is so crucial. Are the STEMS programs enough? The, those summer camps that are expensive? Or do parents need to do even more? Listen, um, in my opinion, STEM camps, a lot of STEM camps are exciting and fluff right um, but though if they don't involve parental involvement that's all they do you know we're trying to increase uh the minority numbers in stem that's a very failing the retention rate is low and the you know just the start rate is low and we've been throwing stem camps non-for-profit stem camps at these kids for years they, it has to be reinforced in the home. It can't just be fun. Because truth be told, when you get to college, science ain't fun. <laughs> it requires dil discipline and diligence. And so that, in, that cannot happen on a, on a craft day in a camp. That has to be reinforced in the home. So no, I don't think a lot of these STEM camps that are very expensive are providing those opportunities. What they may do for those who are expensive is enlighten the child to something greater because they're going off to college at a young age and they're in, on a college campus and they're seeing what a college campus looks like. So it basically gives enlightenment to the child that they can go to college, but it's not enough to just go to college. I need you to be retained. I need you to graduate. And, 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 and right now, especially my, my, um, my passion is young black men nationwide, they're being retained at maybe 20%, 20%, 25%. That's, that's not acceptable for me. And so, yes, we must deal with other things that go along in, in, the, in the college and university environment, um, but we also have to deal with early childhood education in the home and was that your 
passion or the inspiration for starting the phenomenal STEMIS program, recognizing yeah. the disparities? Absolutely. Um, recognizing the disparities at the college level um, where I go to my classroom and if I'm lucky, I'll have one black male, one black male per three classes, not even one, right? So I teach classes that have about 25 students in them per time. And so I teach about three to four classes, right? So imagine me having 75 to 100 students and me having between one and four students, black males, one in four black male students. So I'm not even getting them in my classroom. Then how many of them are gonna graduate, right? If I just said 25%, so of the four, there were times I'm doing, it's getting better, but there were times where I would get one out of the four graduating. And, 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 they, and that's just me as a role model, African-American role model for them. Usually that, that is seen as, we see statistically when, when an African-American sees an African-American professor in the classroom, they have higher levels of retention and graduation. But in terms of just overall, because there are not a lot of black professors, that's another issue we got to deal with, right? Um, imagine 25%. If, if number one, only four of them are in a class of 100 and only 25%, I'm only gra graduating, we're only graduating one of those. I, I, to me, I said, what is going on pre-college? And there are a number of things that are going on. And so I'm trying to attack multiple things. Our conversation will continue after a word from one of our sponsors. Dr. Maya will discuss the reason students are unprepared and ways students can get prepared using the STEM training program. Talk to us about the number of things. It may be obvious to some, but what are the underlying issues why we just don't have the STEM program, STEM meaning science, technology, engineering, math, why aren't those programs attractive to uh, under-resourced communities? Or if they are, why aren't we attracting them? Uh, number one, um, it's not a passion from young. It's not something drilled in from young. All right, what, what, is, what is drilled in from young to young black boys? You know what it is. You know, sports camps are drilled in. They'll be filled. You'll be, you see black boys, boys to the roof. And I, and I understand that many of them are sponsored because there is a, there's an underlying, you know, motive for that, right? So it's not, so they're not prepared from young. Um, the, the education at the younger year, years, there's, a, I think it was the New York Times, 90, 80 to 90% of teachers teaching these young children are white females. Right. And um, there's an issue with that as well in terms of microaggressions, um, expectations. Uh, you know, I, I, I did a, a, a really good uh, professional development called Black Minds Matter, where you see the same behaviors that go on between um, criminal injustice system of, of profiling. It happens in the school system. So that hap that occurs, right? So you're underprepared, low expectations. Um, then you get higher levels, 
Um, and then they're really pushing sports at you to the point where I have, I have, you know, fellow uh, teachers who say, you know, I've had black boys been told, don't take physics, don't take chemistry. It's not required to graduate and it's just going to lower your GPA and you won't be on the team. Right. Well, according to my school, you have to take chem one chemistry in high school to be able to be to go straight to chemistry one in college. If not, you will have to take lower level classes if you don't take chemistry. So off the bat, even though they graduate high school, they can't take the classes necessarily to be a physician, to be a scientist right away. And many of them are underprepared to do so. Okay, so it, it starts young. It starts, the under, under preparation happens at that age. And then, of course, there are microaggressions at the college level as well. But if you're not prepared, those microaggressions make it worse. See, when I was prepared, and I went, I went to a historically black college and university. So when I, by the time I got to the microaggression, which was graduate school, where an advisor told me, you know what, you shouldn't take molecular genetics and biochemistry at the same time. I'm like, what are you talking about? I did that in college and I aced them together. What makes you think I'm not prepared to do that? That was a microaggression. She saw me and she thought, in my opinion, that I wasn't capable of handling such a, a hard coursework. But it didn't matter. I was so prepared that it didn't matter. But when you're underprepared, advising at the lower levels, where they, when you could take Chem 1 your first semester, your advisor tells you you shouldn't, you're like, well, maybe I'm not good enough. And that the snowball happens. So there's so many reasons. There's not enough role modeling. So like like what I'm so for for you know my program I'm constantly putting black physicians male physicians engineers for for children to just watch and look at just see that they can because a lot of the times when they're going through the struggle in biology and chemistry and physics and they're going through it and like well maybe this is not cut out for me why because they don't see anybody at the end game right the finish line. But if they start seeing people at the finish line that looks like them, so okay, well, Dr. David Josie, he actually finished. So if he can finish, I can finish. Dr. Byfield finished. So that if she can finish, I can finish. They need end role modeling. So uh, that's what I'm trying to provide. Yeah. And what is the target group for the STEM programs that you run? Um, so I have beginning, intermediate, and um, advanced, so it's K through 12. My major target, or the unfortunately the m most excited people are the K through eight. Somehow parents feel like once they get to high school, they're on their own, and I think that's a poor decision as well. Every, your high schoolers need your attention, if not the most. I talk about, they're talking about remember we're talking about brain development, different things going on. At this point in adolescence, they're in the le high level of risk. High level of risk. I mean, they do risky things. Their brain, they're, they're making all kinds of decisions because their brain is connected really well. But the part that is important for making good, logical, healthy decisions is very underdeveloped. They need guidance in adolescence. You can't leave them be. 
in adolescence and too many parents are leaving them be in adolescence. So I have K through 12, uh, most of uh, interest is in K through eight. Can parents listening make adjustments now? What are the adjustment possibilities when you recognize your child did not have a strong start or strong encouragement? And as you indicated, maybe dealing with all types of microaggression. Is there a cutoff point or is there still hope? Our brain, our brain is, is, is created in the image of God. It's, there's, there's no cutoff point. There's no, I don't really, I, I really don't believe there's a cutoff point when you make a decision, when you are motivated. So if you're poorly, um, if you're poorly developed in early childhood, um, start where you are, start where you are. And, and so, yes, it may take a little longer. It may take a little longer, but it, it will happen with diligence. I've seen it in my classroom where students were doing poorly in high school and, and I was able to motivate them. I was able to motivate them at 18 years old and there was a shift. I gave my, my personal example. I didn't have good math teachers. Sorry, shout out to my high school. But my first two years in high school, they, there, was, there was a lack of discipline. And so I wanted to get the Regents Diploma, meaning you had to, you had to pass sequential one, two, and three Regents tests. And I passed one, but I couldn't pass two and three because I was really underprepared. And my high school teacher in my senior year, after failing sequential two and three, and he taught me in pre-calculus. I didn't fail the class, but I failed the test. He said, you want to you wanna meet me on weekends? You want to meet me on weekends? We work, and we met on weekends and we I learned I relearned sequential two and three in a semester and I passed those two tests in a semester one year yeah it's not too late our brains are magnificent it's not too late but you have to you have to make a decision you have to discipline yourself and you have to discipline your children The STEM program is run through the summer. Um, is run the STEM camp. So I have the STEM a, camp. Yes, mm-hmm, the phenomenal STEM camp is run uh, in the summertime, uh, June and July. Uh, but I also have a phenomenal STEM year. Uh, so if if parents want me to spread out learning, um, especially uh, I'm setting up standards that uh, many of these states have, what their children need to learn in, in the context of sciences. I've created a phenomenal STEM year program, and I have a phenomenal STEM prep program, which is just three months. So, you know, whenever you want to start, three months. Yeah. So the STEM camp is focused on June and July, but I have uh, programs running throughout the year. For K through 12. For K through 12 virtual learning all virtual so it's also, so it's not a stem camp where um, children go to it's it's learning stem at home someone is hearing this and wants to get in contact with you how can they do so dr maya um, 
you can contact me in multiple ways. You can subscribe to my YouTube channel, Dr. Maya Byfield. Uh, you can like and follow me on Instagram, Phenomenal Stemist. You could like and follow me on Facebook, Phenomenal Stemist. Or you can find me on the website, www.phenomenalstemist.com. And um, there is an area there where you can uh, look up virtual courses. So you're a professor full-time, you run a STEM program, you run a STEM camp, and one of your mantras says, your work serves as a bridge between innate talent and real-world opportunities. Please describe what, what that means. So that's in the context of uh, my research program, which uh, started in 2010, right? And I was... I'm very crucial in connecting students uh, to scientists. So the research program is, is pivotal in undergrad. Uh, teaching, I teach them about research, the process of research, and I teach them how to network outside of the classroom to institutions that, that involve scientific research. Um, and what I would do is I would serve as the middleman of introducing my students to scientists that work in different institutions or teaching them how to find scientists that um, uh, work at scientific institutions. And so it takes them from being just a student who are, who's smart and knows the material to now make it practical, actually do scientific research and get the connections because that's the thing about college, it's not enough to know. You know, when you say it's not, a, it's not a who you know, I mean, it's not about what you know, it's about who you know. It's, it's true. It's not enough nowadays to just have a, a degree. You have to know how to network with people. Uh, it's, we, the skills that, are, that are, are top in these times, you know, can be taken, cannot be replaced by a robot that's what you need to develop and that's what i'm that's what i'm so that's the very important um part that i teach the 9th through 12th graders what are the skills what are the um the 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 very important humanistic skills that cannot be replaced by robotics have you developed that yeah and you've indicated there are STEM programs which are funded by not-for-profits. For the parent who is overworked and underpaid, what is the level of affordability of the year-round? They're looking at their children and they're believing, I, I want to give them the best opportunities, but financially they cannot see how it can happen. Could you... Could you walk a concerned parent through that? <laughs> I totally understand that. And that's why I make my virtual program so affordable. I'm literally charging for the year round $20 a month. I mean, you pay, if you could buy your child a hundred dollar sneaker, you can pay, you can, you can, you can afford uh, to, to put them in a STEM camp for $80 for three months. Right. So it's $80 for the three months or $20 a month for the year program. Um, that's, 
unheard of in STEM camp world, right? That, you know, think, so something that causes $200 for the year, $240 for the year would cost, it would cost $1,000 for, for, for six weeks. So it's extremely affordable, extremely affordable. I do believe in placing value on it. You got to place value on it um, because when you place value on it, it brings diligence. When everything is free, it's not as, um, it, it removes a little bit of diligence. But um, yeah, I, I think, I believe the virtual STEM camp that I cr I've created is extremely affordable. So all you need is a computer. That's another thing, you know, some people don't have computers um, and that would be unfortunate. What I will say is just as you can see in the times that we're living in, you're going to need computers. So when I taught my students last summer, I teach them on free platforms, Google Classroom. And guess what the students now are using because of this COVID? Google Classroom. So all my parents who took my STEM camp last summer, when they started the Google Classroom, there was, I'm sure it was seamless. It's because they were prepared in ways that, you know, their counterparts probably weren't. And so I think what my STEM camp does, it really gives a, a level of preparation uh, that, uh, that is still affordable. Yeah. Dr. Maya, thank you so much. You've inspired us. You've given us information that we can apply. I will put in the episode notes ways to contact you about the, the programs that you offer. I think what you're doing is so compelling and you've highlighted uh, some of the underlying challenges communities face where these programs become so necessary. And I believe if, 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 if applied, that the limit would actually be the sky for many students. So thank you so much for your presence and uh, your example. I believe you've motivated and inspired so many individuals to follow the same path you have. And I'm hoping that we can touch base again in the future. I plan to look into for my own children, the programs that you offer. I in fact learned so much about it just talking with you. And I'm sure many of our listeners have as well. Again, I'll put um, Dr. Byers, in, Dr. Maya's information in the notes and any final parting words, Dr. Maya, for our listeners who may be dealing with various forms of discouragement because they feel maybe a little behind in terms of the sciences, technology, engineering, and math. Number one, the number one biological resource is a child's brain. The number one biological resource is a, is a child's brain. Please develop it. And that brain is created in the image of God. All things are possible. It's not too late. Thank you so much, Dr. Maya, for the good word. We will pass on the information. It'll be in the episode notes. Dr. Maya, thank you so much again for being a guest on the Water Word podcast. Thank you. Thinking Like a Scientist by Jenny Munson. I want to think like a scientist, observing animals, earth, or sky. 
I want to ask good questions, wondering how and what and why. I want to make smart guesses, hypothesizing what might happen and when. I want to do cool experiments, testing my thinking again and again. I want to write up all my data, recording pictures, charts, or words. I want to think through all I've done, drawing conclusions about what I've learned. Wondering, asking, testing, concluding, this is what scientists do. If you want to think like a scientist, then you must do them too. Thank you.